Chapter 6 of Some Problems of Philosophy, A Beginning of an Introduction to Philosophy, by William James. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Percept and Concept, Some Corollaries. The first corollary of the conclusions of the foregoing chapter is that the tendency known in philosophy as empiricism becomes confirmed. Empiricism proceeds from parts to wholes, treating the parts as fundamental, both in the order of being and in the order of our knowledge. Footnote. Naturally, this applies in the present place only to the greater whole which philosophy considers, the universe, namely, and its parts. For there are plenty of minor wholes, animal and social organisms, for example, in which both the being of the parts and our understanding of the parts are founded. End footnote. In human experience, the parts are percepts, built out into wholes by our conceptual additions. The percepts are singulars, that change incessantly and never return exactly as they were before. This brings an element of concrete novelty into our experience. This novelty finds no representation in the conceptual method, for concepts are abstracted from experiences already seen or given, and he who uses them to divine the new can never do so but in ready-made and ancient terms. Whatever actual novelty the future may contain, and the singularity and individuality of each moment makes it novel, escapes conceptual treatment altogether. Properly speaking, concepts are post-mortem preparations, sufficient only for retrospective understanding. And when we use them to define the universe prospectively, we ought to realize that they can give only a bare abstract outline or approximate sketch in the filling out of which perception must be invoked. Rationalistic philosophy has always aspired to a rounded in-view of the whole of things, a closed system of kinds, from which the notion of essential novelty being possible is ruled out in advance. For empiricism, on the other hand, reality cannot be thus confined by a conceptual ring-fence. It overflows, exceeds, and alters. It may turn into novelties, and can be known adequately only by following its singularities from moment to moment as our experience grows. Empiricist philosophy thus renounces the pretension to an all-inclusive vision. It ekes out the narrowness of personal experience by concepts which it finds useful but not sovereign. But it stays inside the flux of life expectantly, recording facts, not formulating laws and never pretending that man's relation to the totality of things as a philosopher is essentially different from his relation to the parts of things as a daily patient or agent in the practical current of events. Philosophy, like life, must keep the doors and windows open. In the remainder of this book, we shall hold fast to this empiricist view. We shall insist that, as reality is created temporally, day by day, Concepts, although a magnificent sketch map for showing us our bearings, can never fitly supersede perception, and that the eternal systems which they form should least of all be regarded as realms of being to know, which is a kind of knowing that casts the knowledge of particulars altogether into the shade. That rationalist assumption is quite beside the mark. Thus does philosophy prove again that essential identity with science which we argued for in our first chapter. Footnote. 
One way of stating the empiricist's contention is to say that the alogical enters into philosophy on an equal footing with the logical. End footnote. The last paragraph does not mean that concepts and relations between them are not just as real in their eternal way as percepts are in their temporal way. What is it to be real? The best definition I know is that which the pragmatic rule gives. Anything is real of which we find ourselves obliged to take account in any way. Concepts are thus as real as percepts, for we cannot live a moment without taking account of them. But the eternal kind of being which they enjoy is inferior to the temporal kind, because it is so static and schematic and lacks so many characters which temporal reality possesses. Philosophy must thus recognize many realms of reality, which mutually interpenetrate the conceptual systems of mathematics, logic, aesthetics, ethics, are such realms, each strung upon some peculiar form of relation, and each differing from perceptual reality in that no one of them is history or happening displayed. Perceptual reality involves and contains all these ideal systems, and vastly more besides. A concept, it was said above, means always the same thing. Change means always change. White, always white. A circle, always a circle. On this self-sameness of conceptual objects, the static and eternal character of our systems of ideal truth is based. For a relation, once perceived to obtain, must obtain always between terms that do not alter. But many persons find difficulty in admitting that a concept used in different contexts can be intrinsically the same. When we call both snow and paper white, it is supposed by these thinkers that there must be two predicates in the field. As James Mill says, quote, every color is an individual color, every size is an individual size, every shape is an individual shape. But things have no individual color in common, no individual shape in common, no individual size in common. That is to say, they have neither shape, color, nor size in common. What then is it which they have in common, which the mind can take into view? Those who affirmed that it was something could by no means tell. They substituted words for things, using vague and mystical phrases which, when examined, meant nothing. End quote. The truth, according to this nominalist author, is that the only thing that can be possessed in common by two objects is the same name. Black in the coat and black in the shoe are the same in so far forth as both shoe and coat are called black. The fact that, on this view, the name can never twice be the same, being quite overlooked. What now does the concept same signify? Applying, as usual, the pragmatic rule, we find that when we call two objects the same, we mean either a, that no difference can be found between them when compared, or b, that we can substitute the one for the other in certain operations without changing the result. If we are to discuss sameness profitably, we must bear these pragmatic meanings in mind. Do then the snow and the paper show no difference in color? And can we use them indifferently in operations? They may certainly replace each other for reflecting light, 
or be used indifferently as backgrounds to set off anything dark, or serve as equally good samples of what the word white signifies. But the snow may be dirty, and the paper pinkish or yellowish without ceasing to be called white, or both snow and paper in one light may differ from their own selves in another and still be white. So the no-difference criterion seems to be at fault. This physical difficulty, which all house painters know, of matching two tints so exactly as to show no difference, seems to be the sort of fact that nominalists have in mind when they say that our ideal meanings are never twice the same. Must we therefore admit that such a concept as white can never keep exactly the same meaning? It would be absurd to say so, for we know that under all the modifications wrought by changing light, dirt, impurity and pigment, etc., there is an element of color quality, different from other color qualities, which we mean that our words shall inalterably signify. The impossibility of isolating and fixing this quality physically is irrelevant, so long as we can isolate and fix it mentally, and decide that whenever we say white, that identical quality, whether applied rightly or wrongly, is what we shall be held to mean. Our meanings can be the same as often as we intend to have them so, quite irrespective of whether what is meant be a physical possibility or not. Half the ideas we make use of are of impossible or problematic things, zeros, infinites, fourth dimensions, limits of ideal perfection, forces, relations sundered from their terms, or terms defined only conceptually by their relation to other terms which may be equally fictitious. White means a color quality of which the mind appoints the standard and which it can decree to be there under all physical disguises. That white is always the same white. What sense can there be in insisting that although we ourselves have fixed it as the same, it cannot be the same twice over? It works perfectly for us on the supposition that it is there self-identically. So the nominalist doctrine is false of things of that conceptual sort, and true only of things in the perceptual flux. What I am affirming here is the platonic doctrine that concepts are singulars, that concept stuff is inalterable, and that physical realities are constituted by the various concept stuffs of which they partake. It is known as logical realism in the history of philosophy, and has usually been more favored by rationalistic than by empiricist minds. For rationalism, concept stuff is primordial, and perceptual things are secondary in nature. The present book, which treats concrete percepts as primordial and concepts as of secondary origin, may be regarded as somewhat eccentric in its attempt to combine logical realism with an otherwise empiricist mode of thought. I mean by this that they are made of the same kind of stuff and melt into each other when we handle them together. How could it be otherwise when the concepts are like evaporations out of the bosom of perception into which they condense again whenever practical service summons them? No one can tell of the things he now holds in his hand and reads how much comes in through his eyes and fingers and how much from his apperceiving intellect unites with that and makes of it this particular book. The universal and the particular parts of the experience are literally immersed in each other. 
and both are indispensable. Conception is not like a painted hook on which no real chain can be hung, for we hang concepts upon percepts and percepts upon concepts interchangeably and indefinitely, and the relation of the two is much more like what we find in those cylindrical panoramas in which a painted background continues a real foreground so cunningly that one fails to detect the joint. The world we practically live in is one in which it is impossible, except by theoretic retrospection, to disentangle the contributions of intellect from those of sense. They are wrapped and rolled together, as a gunshot in the mountains is wrapped and rolled in fold on fold of echo and reverberative clamor. Even so do intellectual reverberations enlarge and prolong the perceptual experience which they envelop, associating it with remoter parts of existence. And the ideas of these in turn work like those resonators that pick out partial tones in complex sounds. They help us to decompose our percept into parts and to abstract and isolate its elements. The two mental functions thus play into each other's hands. Perception prompts our thought, and thought in turn enriches our perception. The more we see, the more we think, while the more we think, the more we see in our immediate experiences, and the greater grows the detail and the more significant the articulateness of our perception. Footnote. The interpretation goes so deep that we may even act as if experience consisted of nothing but the different kinds of concept stuff into which we analyze it. Such concept stuff may often be treated for purposes of action and even of discussion as if it were a full equivalent for reality. But it is needless to repeat, after what precedes, that no amount of it can ever be a full equivalent, and that in point of genesis it remains a secondary formation. End footnote. Later, when we come to treat of causal activity, we shall see how practically momentous is this enlargement of the span of our knowledge through the wrapping of our percepts and ideas. It is the whole coil and compound of both by which effects are determined, and they may be different effects from those to which the perceptual nucleus would by itself give rise. But the point is a difficult one, and at the present stage of our argument, this brief mention of it must suffice. Readers who by this time agree that our conceptual systems are secondary and on the whole imperfect and ministerial forms of being will now feel able to return and embrace the flux of their hourly experience with a hearty feeling that, however little of it at a time be given, what is given is absolutely real. Rationalistic thought with its exclusive interest in the unchanging and the general, has always derealized the passing pulses of our life. It is no small service on empiricism's part to have exercised rationalism's veto, and reflectively justified our instinctive feeling about immediate experience. Other world, says Emerson, there is no other world than this one, namely, in which our several biographies are founded. Natur had Veda, Konnakshala, alles ich sei mit einem Male, dich prüfe du nur allermeist, ob du kern oder schale seist. The belief in the genuineness of each particular moment in which we feel the squeeze of this world's life, as we actually do work here, or work is done upon us, is an Eden from which rationalists seek in vain to expel us, now that we have criticized their state of mind.
but they still make one last attempt and charge us with self-stultification your belief in the particular moments they insist so far as it is based on reflective argument and is not a mere omission to doubt like that of cows and horses is grounded in abstraction and conception only by using concepts have you established percepts in reality the concepts are the vital things then and the percepts are dependent on them for their character of reality with which your reasoning endows them you stand self-contradicted concepts appear as the sole triumphant instruments of truth for you have to employ their proper authority even when seeking to install perception in authority above them the objection is specious but it disappears the moment one recollects that in the last resort a concept can only be designative and that the concept reality which we restore to immediate perception is no new conceptual creation but only a kind of practical relation to our will perceptively experienced which reasoning had already interfered with but which when the reasoning was neutralized by still further reasoning resorted to its original seat as if nothing had happened that concepts can neutralize other concepts is one of their great practical functions this answers also the charge that it is self-contradictory to use concepts to undermine the credit of conception in general the best way to show that a knife will not cut is to try to cut with it rationalism itself it is that has so fatally undermined conception by finding that when worked beyond a certain point it only piles up dialectic contradictions. End of chapter 6